Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. About eight days ago, I had the, the privilege of spending the week in Baltimore. And uh, it was a great time to go out. I was a part of a, a training conference about sharing your faith, and that's an area that I consistently need to be equipped in and encouraged in, so I had the opportunity to go to Baltimore for the week to, to engage in some, some ongoing training. And, and I had a great experience there and got to do a number of, of cool things. But I'll tell you three things I didn't do in Baltimore. Three things I didn't do. Now, this isn't a comprehensive list. There are other things I didn't do. But three things I didn't do in Baltimore. One thing I didn't do, I didn't buy a house. Second thing I didn't do, I didn't go to the grocery store. Third thing I didn't do, I didn't change my phone number to a Maryland phone number. Uh, Those three things I did not do. Now, why did I not do those things? Because I was just visiting. I was only going to be there. Thanks, Cody. I appreciate that. I was only going to be there for a very short amount of time. I was only going to be there for six days. Why would you go to all of that work for a place you were only going to visit for six days? I, I stayed in a hotel. I didn't buy a house. I ate at a friend's home or, or at a restaurant. I, I didn't go to the grocery store and, and cook meals. Um, I, I represented the 405 in Maryland um, instead of changing my number to a, to a, to a Maryland number. Um, because I was only going to be there for a short period of time. Now, let's contrast that to my experience 12 years ago moving back to Norman. When we moved back to Norman, uh, we bought a house. We found the nearest homeland. And we got 405 area codes and phone numbers. And we did all three of those things before we ever moved to this town. Now, why did we do that? Cody? Because we, we expected to be there for a while, right? We expected to be here. We, we were not going to just spend six days here. We've, we've spent 12 plus years here. Um, and so we approached our experience quite differently. Um, how long you anticipate being someplace greatly impacts your experience there. Uh, this is true not just for me. This is true for you. You can think of a thousand examples in your own life. Of, of how that's true. And I say all that today as a setup to a, a message about time. And knowing that this is a message about time and, and hearing that setup, uh, you're probably guessing where this is going. Because many times as Christians, when we talk about time, we talk about how this life is very short in comparison to eternity. That's where we go. That, that this life is, is like staying in hotels and eating at restaurants compared to eternity. And you know, theologically, that's absolutely true. And, and you know what? I, this is a message that I gave. If you were here back in January, you remember we strung a rope from the cross all the way to the, to the back of the room, and we talked about how this life is just a dot on this long line compared to eternity. Theologically, this life is very short in comparison to eternity. But you know what else I know about life? Life sometimes feels kind of long, doesn't it? Life sometimes feels long. Our experience of life is sometimes long. I'll give you an example. Uh, In our hallway in our house, we have 
uh, these frames. And, and Kimberly and I bought these frames. There's room for four pictures in the frames, uh, one for picture for every year that we have known each other. And so if you were to go over to our house right now, and you really ought to come sometime, it's, it's hilarious because there's a picture of us in the eighth grade. And it walks all the way through every year uninterrupted from eighth grade. We didn't get married then, uh, uh, but we've known each other that long. And there's pictures of us from eighth grade all the way up to today, a picture for every year. And we, we have enough uh, frames that are identical to take us all the way into our 90s uh, with a picture for every year. You know what, if, if we live to be 95, we're going to be in bonus time. So, uh, but we, we, we have a, a picture for, for every year. And you know what, I was just this last week, I was walking down that hall and I was looking at these pictures and I was reminded of all of the wonderful things that God has blessed us with and the great experience we've had, 17 years of marriage. Um, but I also, in those pictures, was reminded of some of the real difficulties in life. I see a picture in a year and I'm reminded of this family member that died in that year. And I see this picture, and I'm reminded of this difficulty that went on for several years. I see another picture, and I'm reminded of some of the struggles that began then that are ongoing now. And I look at the stack of frames that we have, and I think of the future, and I think, you know what, this life doesn't feel all that short at times. This life feels kind of long. So what do we do in a life that, though theologically, is quite short in comparison to eternity, but in reality, our experience of it many times is quite long. Now, you know, I, hey, I, I've said it too. Time seems to go by that fast, doesn't it? Time seems to move very quick. But when we're experiencing difficulty and hardship and uncertainty, sometimes even though the very quick life can feel quite long. So what do we do as believers in Christ in light of a life that can feel quite long? Well, we're going to turn to God's Word today to, to get some direction on that topic, and we're going to look at one of the most famous verses from the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11. This is a very famous verse, the most often quoted verse in the book of Jeremiah, really one of the most often quoted verses in the entire Old Testament. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Um, and this verse is very popular because this is a verse that we share with one another when things are hard or uncertain. Uh, everyone in this room has probably been given this verse at one time or another um, when you graduated high school. Somebody had this on the bottom of a card. Uh, when you graduated college, when you were searching for a job, when you were diagnosed with cancer, when you were hopeful to have children, and it hadn't happened yet. Whatever it is, the, the, the circumstances of your life, someone has probably shared with you this verse and said, guess what? God has good plans for you, plans for your welfare and not your harm, plans to prosper you. He has a future and a hope for you. And you know what? When you got that verse in that card, in that note, uh, shared with you over the phone, it was genuinely encouraging at that moment. But you know what happens to us with verses like this is, is we, we hear that God has a future and a hope for us. We, we hear that he has plans for our welfare, and we want it not someday, we want it now. That's why when you're looking for a job you, and you, you, somebody shares with you this, this truth, you 
check that email inbox a little more frequently. Maybe today is the day that God's welfare and good future hope and plans for me comes true. Uh, This is why when you've got cancer and this verse has been shared with you, every doctor's appointment you think, this is the one that they'll tell me, we don't know what happened to it, it went away. It's gone because we we want it to be be soon. Uh, This is why when when, when this is here, we, we, just, we just anticipate that this verse is somewhat like a vending machine. It gives us a quarter to place in the God machine, and we get what we want back immediately. But the reality is that is not exactly what this verse was intended to communicate. See, God did not give Jeremiah 29.11 to tell people that His good plans for them would happen immediately. And looking at the original context of Jeremiah 29 will encourage us so that if you have been discouraged by this verse and and become cynical, that God may have good plans for some people but not for me because my experience of this is I've been waiting for something I have not gotten. My news is worse than I hoped it would be. If that is your experience, then, then this is a message for you to hear Because the context of Jeremiah 29 will help us to understand a little more of what God intended by this verse. And that is that our lives are spent, though short in comparison to eternity, are actually long for us. And he's got plans for us during that time. So if you've got a Bible, open to Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to look at Jeremiah 29, the first 14 verses in a message that I've entitled This Life. We're going to see a few things this morning from Jeremiah chapter 29. The first thing we're going to see from Jeremiah 29 is that there are no shortcuts. We're going to see that there are no shortcuts in this life. Now, in order to really grasp this, we're going to to have to take these verses out of order a little bit so that we can make some sense of them. Uh, When God wrote this letter to the people of Judah, it made perfect sense to them in the order in which it was written. But for us who are not as familiar with the context of Jeremiah chapter 29, we need to look at it in pieces and understand a little more of what God intended when he gave us Jeremiah 29, 11. And one of the things that I think God intended us to know is that there are no shortcuts. Now, we we understand that by understanding a little bit about the context into which Jeremiah 29 was written. Uh, Jeremiah was a prophet of God. That meant that God whispered in Jeremiah's ear, and then Jeremiah would speak forth God's word to his people. And Jeremiah was God's prophet to the nation of Judah. Uh, The people of Israel had split into two kingdoms by the time Jeremiah came along, a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. And God had Jeremiah be his voice to that southern kingdom of Judah. And God had a special uh, arrangement with his people. And that arrangement was this. If the people of Judah, if God's people would obey him, keep him as their God, continue to worship him in the ways that he has prescribed, if, if they kept a fidelity in their relationship to him, that God would make their fields produce an abundant harvest of crops, he would have their streams full of water, and he would protect their borders to not be invaded by enemy armies. That was God's arrangement with the people 
of Judah. But if they were to disobey and wander away from God, then he would discipline them. And one of the ways in which God would discipline his people if they wandered away from him was he would have enemy armies come in and take them over. And during the time of Jeremiah, God's people had wandered away from him. If you were here two weeks ago, you, you know we talked about how God's people had exchanged their, their God, their living hope. They had exchanged him for cisterns that could hold no water, for false gods. And because of that, God had begun to discipline the nation of Judah, and he had done so by allowing the Babylonian army to come into Judah and to take them over. And the Babylonian foreign policy at that time was to take the best and the brightest of a country and to, and to put them in chains and march them back to their home city in order to, to work there and better their city. So what would happen was the Babylonians would come in and they would find all the great art people, all the great builders, all the great thinkers and and leaders, and they would, they would pack them up and they would send them back to Babylon to, to make the cities of Babylon more beautiful and better run and those kinds of things. And so some of the people that were carted off during this deportation were Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know their story from the book of Daniel. They were some of those who were carted off back to Babylon during this time. Um, and as the people of Judah were now living in exile in Babylon, different prophets began to step up to the plate and tell everybody how long they thought they were going to stay there. Now, the prophecy game in Judah was a pretty high-stakes game. Uh, If you were wrong, they would kill you. But that didn't stop people from making predictions anyway, especially if their prediction made them popular. And there were some false prophets at the time of Jeremiah who were taking advantage of the fact that the people were in exile in Babylon, and they were telling the people what they wanted to hear. And what the people wanted to hear was that they were only going to be in Babylon a short time. And one of those false prophets who was telling the people they were only going to be in Babylon for a short time was a man by the name of Hananiah. And Hananiah was saying that the people of Judah were only going to be in exile for two short years. We know this because the context of Jeremiah 29 is Jeremiah chapter 28. And in Jeremiah chapter 28, verses 2 to 4, this is what we find out. It says, Hananiah, the son of Azar, spoke to Jeremiah in the house of the Lord, and this is what he said, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon, and within two years... I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. And I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. See, Hananiah was standing up saying, hey, God told me something. God told me that we're only going to be in Babylon for two years. And and that, you know, there might have been people that high-fived him. He might have become a somebody. That was good news to them. We're only going to be in Babylon two years. Hananiah's words were received by people very positively, including Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, Hananiah, I hope you're right, because that would be awesome. But God had whispered something else 
in Jeremiah's ear. See, Hananiah was speaking of his own intentions, of his own will, saying that they were going to be there two years. But God was speaking to Jeremiah, telling Jeremiah, you need to correct this prophetic calendar. You need to let my people know they're not going to just be in exile for two years. They're going to be in exile for 70 years. You need to make sure that they understand that. So Jeremiah picks up a pen, and he writes to the exiles in Judah these words, beginning in in verse 8 of chapter 29. He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. In other words, God says, hey, Hananiah has nothing to do with me. He's not heard from me, and I'm putting a big veto over the top of his two-year promise. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. They were hopeful that they were going to be in Babylon for two years, but God says they're going to be there for 70. Now, do you think they received that as good news? Absolutely not. Let's just, let's just run the exercise uh, together with us. Uh, take your age. I'm not going to ask you to, to say this out loud or to write it down where someone else might see it. Hopefully, you know your age, give or take five years. So get close. Your age, add 70 to it. How many of you think you'll be alive 70 years from now? Hey, we got a few. The Moses family has at least two who are going to be here 70 years from now. You are our representatives who will be here 70 years from now. That's, that's wonderful. Thanks, girls. Um, not many other hands. You know what the proclamation of 70 years meant? They were going to die in Babylon. They were going to die there. And not only were they going to die there, but for some of them, their kids were going to die there. Maybe in the third generation, they might be able to return to Jerusalem. This was not news that would have been received with with great enthusiasm. If they were hopeful that their their experience in Babylon was, was going to be brief, if they were hopeful that they could live in hotels and eat room service and, and, and keep their Jerusalem area codes, they were sadly mistaken. They were going to be there 70 years. Now, God still gives them good news. God says, I'm not done with you as a people. I'm not writing off the nation of Judah and the tribe of Judah and going to find salvation through someone else because eventually through the descendants of Judah came the Messiah, Jesus, and the Savior of the world. God has promises and plans for his nation of Israel that will go all the way into the end times, and God is saying, I'm not abandoning that plan. God's good plans for welfare and for prosperity had a very long clock on them. And yet the people were supposed to to draw encouragement from that, even though 
they might have received it as, as somewhat bad news. Now, what do we do with, with this kind of a passage? What do we do with it? Um, I think it's a, a great question for us to ask because it's easy for us to say, you know, well, there, there are no shortcuts and they were going to be there a long time. That stinks to be living in Judah at that time and, and all this kind of stuff. We, we, we could go there with all of these historical things, but, but what do we do with it for us? And you know, when I, when I have a, a passage like this and a question like this, I do what many of you do. I call Jeff Harwell, um, one of our elders, and I, I, called, I called Jeff this week and I said, Jeff, help me uh, with this passage. Um, and he said, you know, when I look at an Old Testament passage like this, he said, I often will look for what does this passage tell us about God and what does this passage tell us about us and use those as the basis for our, our application. And I thought, that is beautiful, so I have to footnote him. Uh, in, in the service today. Uh, but, you know, what does this passage tell us about God? What does this passage tell us about us? Well, it tells us a few things about both of those. Uh, what this passage tells us about God is, first of all, that God's not in a hurry. Ever thought about that? God's not in a hurry. Uh, we know this. Think about the way that God has related to his people. Um, the Israelites wandered for 40 years in the wilderness before they were able to go into the promised land. That's, that's not a God who's in a hurry. Um, for a thousand years, God's people had the, the plan of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament to learn that every sin requires a death to be paid. And the animal sacrifice system of the book of Leviticus is, is all about teaching God's people that. God taught his people that over a thousand years. He's not in a hurry. Uh, Jesus came and said, I'm coming back to you soon, and yet 2,000 years later, he has not yet come back to the earth. That's a God who's not in a hurry. We need to remember that. See, sometimes we want God to be in a hurry because we want his plans to unfold in our lives immediately. Why crockpot something that can be microwaved? We want stuff very soon in our lives. And yet, God is not in a hurry. That doesn't mean that he's not intentional. It doesn't mean that he's not powerful. It just means that he's got plans and purposes that take time to develop in our lives. Microwaved barbecue doesn't taste as good as stuff that's been slow cooked. Um, and the depth of our character is cured over time. See, God is not in a hurry. One of the things we, we learn about God. The second thing is that, is that God doesn't just work with one generation. God doesn't just work with one generation. You know, sometimes we have this generational bias. We think that everything applies to our time and everything will be fulfilled in our time. We just do. Every generation has kind of felt like this. It's all going to happen now and it's all going to happen to me. But the reality is that God has worked with generation after generation of people from the start of time. It doesn't mean that, that God doesn't like us, doesn't care for us. It means that we're one of his chosen people that he loves within a generation of chosen people that he loves. We need to remember that. Not everything will, will, will come to pass in, in our given lifetime. third thing it tells us about God, though, is that he is thinking about us and caring for us and plans that ultimately will result in our welfare and our good. We need to remember that. God is not just subjecting us to difficulty and hardship over a length of days in life 
because he's wanting to punish us or just to take out some anger against us. God is training us and equipping us and teaching us to relate to him. He has plans for our good and for our welfare. We need to remember that. Those are some of the things we need to remember about God. But we also need to recognize this passage tells us something about us. And the thing it tells us about us, it was true of the people of Judah, it's also true for us. We, we want things now, and we want things immediately, and we don't like it when it doesn't happen that way. It's okay that we experience discomfort and difficulty when something we're hoping for doesn't happen immediately, but we need to, to recognize the fact that just because it doesn't happen immediately doesn't mean that God has abandoned us or that he doesn't We need to remember that because we have this temptation to want to have God in a hurry and to have everything now. You're, you're trusting God for kids and it hasn't happened yet and you think, enough, because you want it now. You've got an illness that is ongoing and you want it to be done with, but it, but it lingers in the providence of God. Um, you want a, a, a job situation to unfold and just not happening, and the, the letters aren't coming in. See, we, we need to remember that though we want shortcuts, that's not necessarily God's agenda because he's working with us over a longer period of time. So with that in mind, if God is not in a hurry, and if, if God has a number of days for us on this planet, what are some things that we need to know from this passage to help us to know how to live? And we see a few of those things unfold for us. And so we'll back up into the letter now and, and pick up some of those. How, how do we live since we've got a long life? Well, the first thing that we need to do is we need to fulfill the first. Fulfill the first. Now, we, we see that in verses 4 to 7. Remember, the people of Judah thought that they were only going to be in Babylon for a couple of years. And because of that, they had remained kind of standoffish. They had, had not built houses. They, many of them were waiting to have children so they could be born with good, clean Judah passports back in the motherland. Um, they, were, they were pulling out of life and waiting to, to do anything, thinking that they were going to return home quickly. They were living in hotels, and they were eating room service. So God writes this letter through Jeremiah, beginning in verse 4, and he says this. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what he says to them. Build houses and live in them. Pretty basic command, right? Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. What he was saying was, fulfill the first. But what do I mean by that? What he was calling them to do in light of the fact that they were going to be there for a generation or two, for 70 years, he calls them to, to live out, really, the, the first commandment. If you remember back in the book of Genesis, chapter 1 and verse 28, God gave a command to Adam and Eve. The first commandment that he gave them, this is what it was. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply 
and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the ground. You hear echoes of that in God's call to the people of Judah who were exiled in Babylon? He says, hey, you're going to be here for a while, so make a life for yourself. You know, get married, have kids, get a job, invest the, the skills that I have given you in the betterment of the community in which you live. Um, use everything I've given you to have a positive impact to make it a better place to live. You know, you don't do that in places that you visit. In Baltimore, I was a taker and not a giver. I took in a game at Camden Yards. I, I took some food, maybe dropped a little bit of money in their, in their coffers, but that was about it. I didn't, I didn't start a ministry in Baltimore because I was just there for a short time. And, and sometimes if, if we fail to grasp the fact that we're going to be here for a long time in this life, we can fail to, to realize that, that God has a purpose and a plan for us in life, and that's to, to fulfill that first commandment, to have a family and to enjoy it, to have a job and to do it well, have a positive impact on the community in which you live. Because of the length of days they were going to spend there, God calls them to invest their lives in that place and to make it a better place and to enjoy the things that he's given to you there. See, this was something that was, that was true for them, and this is something also that's true for us. See, as we live out our lives today, you know, God's people uh, in the New Testament era also have a temptation to want to pull out and simply wait for Jesus to return. This is the problem that the Thessalonians had. Look at 2 Thessalonians. One of the things that happens in that book is that God uh, writes... Uh, to the, the people in, in Thessalonica, and some of them had stopped working and had just been hanging out in the city waiting for Jesus to return. And he says, no, get back to work. You're not going to miss it when I come. Fulfill the first commandment. Have a life. What God is calling them to do. You know what? The same thing is true for us today. God is wanting us to look forward to his return but to live life in the meantime. I, a very practical way of thinking about this. You know, I am, I am really looking forward to the return of Jesus to the earth. I am. I hope that we're the generation that he returns with. But I'm also really looking forward to my son's t-ball game tomorrow night. Um, he's a Blue Jay, and uh, he looks awesome in his uniform, and I can't wait to see him out there tomorrow night. That, that's an understanding that this is a long life. Have a family. Have a life. Invest your skills. Part of what happens when we realize that we're going to be here for a while. Second thing, find your faith. First thing is fulfill the first. Second thing, find your faith. We see this in a, in a few verses. I'll, I'll come back to verse 7. I want to look first at, at verses 12 and 13. See, God speaks to them, and he wants them to, in the midst of this long life, to not just live out their days and not just have a job, but he wants them to do those things and not just have a family. He wants them to do those things. But he wants them also to take advantage of this season of their lives to, to reconnect with him. Verses 12 and 13 say, Then you will call upon me, and you will come, and you will pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God was, was calling them into a relationship with himself. He wanted them to spend their time in exile relating to him and learning to trust him 
and to open up all of their heart to him and live in relationship with him. You know, part of the reason why I think this life is long is that devoting and, and learning to trust God with all of our heart and all of our lives is, is not a quick microwaved process. You think of your heart as a building with many rooms. We close off a lot of the doors to different rooms of our heart from God and say you're not welcome there, whether it's our our family life or our financial life or our vocational life or whatever. We just say, God, you're not welcome there. You're, you're welcome in the foyer, but nowhere else. See, God has us live out our lives over a number of days so that over time we can learn to trust him with all things. And as we begin to trust him for all things, we begin to trust him for things that, that seem wild otherwise. Verse 7 Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. They were to pray for the nation of Babylon, the place where God had planted them. As we restore our relationship with God, it only is natural that we would want to share that relationship with others. And the first place we go with that as we're living in relationship with God is in prayer to him. We talk to God about people before we talk to people about God. And and that's, that's where it begins because it begins in relationship with him. See, they were to fulfill the first. They were to find their faith. We are to fulfill the first. We are to find our faith. And lastly, we're to live for a day that we cannot see. We're to live for a day that we cannot see. When Jeremiah wrote chapter 29 and verse 11, when he said that they were going to have a future and a hope, And you continue on down into verse 14, I'll be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather from you all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. How many people who read that original letter would actually get to experience life back in the land? Only the Moses children. Um, Very few. God was asking them to trust him for a day that they could not see from that point. He was saying, there is a future blessing that is coming upon your life, but it's out there far enough that you can't see it from here. And you know what? That's what God is calling us to as well as we live this long life. We live this long life trusting that that, that God will, will bring justice to the earth trusting that, that we'll have unhindered relationship and communication with him, trusting that, that uh, the illnesses that we struggle with will be done away with. We live this life trusting for things, but trusting for things that if we're real honest from here, it's difficult for us to see or it's impossible for us to see. And yet God is, is calling us to, to live life, to walk in a direction towards that reality. And this is something that, that is very common to us in other areas of life. I mean, think about this. If I were to tell you to go to Dallas, how would you get there? Well, you would, you would drive out to I-35, and you would turn south, and you would go. How would you know how to do that? Well, your, your past experience. Maybe you've been to Dallas before. Um, maybe it's the, the, the signs on, on the street. You know, thinking that the, the good people of Oklahoma in the state of Oklahoma would not construct signs that said Dallas this way if it didn't actually take you to Dallas. You have a certain trust in that sign. Now, getting on that highway, a whole other issue. The state is very content in tearing up all of the on-ramps to that road. But 
the fact that that road once on it will take you there, we, uh, we, we believe that. Our, our past experience, that, the, the, the integrity of the one who is giving that promise, that, that allows us to get on that road and drive south even though we can't see Dallas, we'll head in that direction. You know what? The same thing is true in our relationship with God. God says, go this way. It's, it's a direction that is too far. The, the future reality, you cannot see. The return of my son, you can't see. You can't even hardly imagine this. The justice and the love and the experience and the lack of this and the no more tears and all that is out there. And I'm asking you to walk and live in such a way that is headed in that direction based on your past experience with me, based on my character of who I am. The fact that I would point you in this direction. God says, trust me and live in light of that reality. And you know what? As believers in Christ, that is what we're called to do in this long life. We're called to live in light of that destination. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And they're going to lead us in a closing song here um, in just a moment. But... um, as they prepare to lead us, I just want to share this, this one thought uh, with you. You know, we're, we're going we, to trust God for a, a, a place that we cannot see, to trust him for a reality that is beyond us, requires us ultimately to trust him and requires us to, to lean into him um, and to find our faith in the midst of this journey. And the strength of that relationship is found in the fact that we have a God who has got a hold of us who is never going to let go. And so we're going to sing a song today that reminds us of the fact that God will never let go of us. And as we, as we sing it, I want just to soak in for you um, and, and spur up within you this, this faith of trusting God for the place you cannot now see.